0: Well, good evening or good morning, depending on when you are uh, watching this video. We have gone to video this weekend for an obvious reason. Uh, just a little before our Saturday service, uh, I got a positive test, and that wasn't a good thing. Uh, I had some close contact uh, with some positive tests and had a few light symptoms. And so this seemed like this would be the right thing uh, to do. So take your Bibles and turn with you with me to Second Kings 12. Uh, we will also be turning to Second Chronicles 24, which is the parallel passage. As we have studied Second Kings, we have certainly seen the ugliness of sin and the reality of God's judgment. In these last couple of studies, there's been a lot of bloodshed where we see God's judgment. The bad guys have been rather clear, the Ahab and Jezebel and their wicked daughter, Athaliah. And they received the the judgment of God. And the good guys, we studied last week, this amazing couple, Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada. Wow, they were amazing. And we rejoiced at how God sustained them through their life. I like movies and stories where the good guys and bad guys are really clear, but life isn't always like that. And today we come to the study of King Joash, who started so well, but then things went bad later in life. It makes a messy story, but it makes a very clear point. And the clear point is that we have to be setting a firm spiritual foundation that will sustain us throughout our entire life. And a very key element to that spiritual foundation is paying attention to who we listen to. Who has our ear. Who is influencing us. 2 Kings 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, that's the king in the northern kingdom... Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. That's the southern kingdom, 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years of Jehoiada the priest instructing him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and to burn incest there. Incest there. Joash became king. So I don't know if, if, if you heard the praise, but it was kind of faint praise because of the qualifiers in verse 2 and verse 3. He became king in chapter 11. We studied that last week, where uh, in an amazing story, uh, Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat spare, rescue young Joash as a baby when wicked queen Athaliah is trying to destroy all the heirs so she can have all the power. She killed her own grandsons. But God in his sovereignty used this amazing couple to rescue young Joash so that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. So God's accomplishing his purpose here without doubt. And then we read in verse 2, he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord, that's exactly what you want to read. Uh, We rejoice, but we instantly wonder what's up with that last line all the years that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. After rescuing Joash, uh, Jehoiada saw him crowned as king, as a seven-year-old, and then guided this young man all the way into his adult life. Uh, king duties. In fact, 2 Chronicles 24, 15 tells us that Jehoiada lived unusually long to be able to do this. It says, we'll see this later, he lived 130 years. Jehoiada instructed him. But what happened to Joash, this young king, when his mentor and coach died? That's giving us a clue that it might not go well. And then verse 3 says, The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. um, Incense there. You see, the high places became a problem for Israel that you might not imagine because the high places simply mean hills. Nothing wrong with hills. Nothing wrong with beautiful hills. But typically... In a pagan culture like that, those highest places were chosen by pagans as a place for their idolatry. Uh, Practices included this ritualistic uh, immorality and child sacrifice. It got to be awful, but there wasn't anything wrong with just worshiping God at a high hill before the temple was built. First and second Samuel record that there were some legitimate times of worshiping God, making sacrifices. Samuel made sacrifices in high places to God rightly, but that was before the temple. But now after the temple had been built, they were to worship God only there because they didn't want God didn't want them to fall into the practices of the pagans of idolatry. But that's exactly what happened. And what Joash did here is he allowed them to remain. So we could call this a passive sin. In other words, the sin was not what Joash, Joash the king did. It's what he failed to do. If he was really going to be committed to the Lord, he needed to take care of the idolatry in the land. After all, the Baal worship had been dealt with by Jehoiada the priest. He needed to remove the idolatry, but he, he simply did nothing. Why didn't he remove them? We're kind of assuming or guessing, but is it, is it because he didn't want to offend some of the people in the kingdom who liked to worship idols? Was it because Joash maybe wondered sometimes himself, "Do these other gods have any power? Am I really am I really?" Right, that there's only one true God. I think of the times that we sometimes toy with the world's values in our mind. We could maybe categorize them, money, sex, and power. That's the world's value. Money, sex, and power, you see it. Everywhere, and we can so easily begin to pursue these things in the wrong way over God. And I just wonder are we doing what needs to be done to protect ourselves from tipping over to the world's view of those things where they begin to replace God? High places. Who are you listening to that you shouldn't listen to? High places. That need to be removed? Is it is it is it podcasts? Is it authors? Is it is it certain friends? They have your ear and they're actually communicating stuff that is leading you away from scripture. What temptations do you keep around that might keep you from biblical truth? What needs to be removed? Are there are are there are there apps? Are there programs? Would you remove a high place if you knew it was leading you from God? Joash failed to do that. So maybe that's explaining something of what's going to happen in his heart later. Ironically, however, the bulk of chapter 12 highlights a major spiritual accomplishment of Joash. See how messy this gets? We already see that there's going to be a problem in his life spiritually, and yet... This chapter is telling us something amazing he did to the glory of God. And that is that he successfully repaired God's temple. Verse 4. Joash said to the priests, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from every one of the treasurers and let it be used to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. It was known there was problems that needed to be fixed. The temple was now 130 to 140 years old. Solomon had built the amazing uh, temple, but everything needs upkeep. Later on, verses 11 and 12 highlight uh, carpenters, masons, stone cutters, because wood will eventually get wet and, and rot and mortar crumbles and stones crack or shift and roofs leak. And so Joash has been seeing these problems. Probably everybody's been seeing these problems and repairs were needed. So plan A, Joash, the king, who at this point is doing things right in the eyes of the Lord, says we need to do something, so he tells the priest to collect the money to do it. And the money needs to come from these, these census uh, tax money, really, vows and voluntary gifts. Financial giving in the... Um, in the Old Testament, is not as simple as the tithe or 10% that we sometimes read about. That was, that was foundational. They had to bring 10% of their income in, but there was additional giving that the law described. The uh, census thing was basically a tax of all military-aged men, Exodus 30, when they took a census. Uh, this doesn't seem to have been carried out. They, they weren't doing it. Um, secondly the the vow money seemed to be when you made a vow of service you could also in a sense give it in cash Uh, Leviticus 27 then there were these offerings that were voluntary gifts of worship somebody just out of the gratitude of their heart brought free will offerings so so these weren't commanded or required but Joash said to the priest go go collect that money in fact, 2 Chronicles, the passage that parallels this, says that the priests were actually to go into the communities of Judah and were to collect the tax portion of that from the military-aged men. It was neglected, we assume. If you think about it, uh, Joash's dad uh, Ahaziah and his granddad Joram were both wicked kings, and they didn't seem to want to follow through. We, we, we get it. If you're ungodly, you don't care about the temple being taken care of. And so somehow it seems that the whole nation could have become kind of spiritually suppressed and passive, just not doing everything the law asked. When COVID first hit, churches, we all know, were forced into a more passive mode. How about you? Have you found yourself kind of uh, not getting back to spiritual form, not being involved as much, not investing yourself into this Bible study or ministry like you were before? It's, it's hard to kind of get ourselves going. I think Joash, in sincerity, after two ungodly ancestor kings, decided we need to restart he seems sincere. So go collect the money. Well, how did that work out? He told them to, but verse 6 says, By the 23rd year of King Joash, we don't know when he first ordered it, but by to the 23rd year the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and other priests and asked them, Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for the repairing of the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, He tells them, stop taking more money if you aren't going to put it to work. To repair the temple, and we might think, and some have thought, well, maybe there was corruption that the priests were trying to keep the money. But it doesn't seem to be the case. If there had been dishonesty, I think Joash would have, you know, fired him or executed him or something. And in fact, later on, it tells us, uh, verse. We'll come to verse fifteen where it says they did work or or work uh, oversee this project honestly. So the problem was not some kind of intentional corruption, but rather a passive procrastination. So many times things that we intend to do don't get done for multiple reasons. We mean well, our intentions are good, but we don't get around to it. So we're kind of guessing. It could be laziness. It could be they didn't like asking people for money. Kind of get that but there actually could be a somewhat legitimate reason why they didn't get around to it. And it's hinted at in verse 8, which also introduces why they went from plan A of fundraising to plan B. Verse 8 says, The priests agreed they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. It seems that the Levites and priests, though they were in charge of the temple, they weren't getting it done because they didn't really have the skills. And we're going to find that they actually later need to hire skilled people. So, maybe they're saying, Joash, we want it fixed too, but we're kind of dragging our feet because this building thing is not really in our wheelhouse. So Jehoiada the priest, and Joash the king come up with plan B. Uh, Here it says that Jehoiada, verse 9, the priest, took a chest and bored a hole in it. Actually, Chronicles said that that, uh, the king did it. So obviously they're now on the same page. The priest who had helped to raise Joash and Joash the king are on the same page, and they have a new plan. Here it is. Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid and placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. The priests who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought into the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. So they're using a new method of of physically kind of bypassing the give all the money to the priests and let them figure it out to having an actual separate chest. When, verse 11, when the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work of the temple. We assume those to still be Levites. With it, they paid those who worked in the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, The masons and stone cutters, they purchased timber and dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. So they're going to now get it done. But it all started with thinking differently that, you know, okay, we need to hire people and we need to set aside a separate fund. This seems to be the biblical origination of the, uh, the building fund. As most of you know, we've had a uh, separate building fund at Open Door Bible Church through the years. And, and so money can be designated towards uh, building projects, building additions, uh, major uh, upgrades. Many of you have been involved in that. In uh, 2019, we completed the uh, major addition of the Discipleship Center uh, last summer, 2021, uh, we did the renovation of the lower level uh, for the youth and uh, children's ministries. And the building fund goes on, and uh, actually in our July congregational meeting, we'll be talking about uh, the next project. But the chest filling kind of became a visual, and I'm kind of thinking how when we've had these different projects, we've, uh, we've put up a chart. So we can kind of track and visually see how God is Providing, and it seemed as the chest kept filling, and then they would empty it, and the chest would fill. Uh, They kind of had that same kind of uh, physical but spiritual motivation. So, how did plan B go? Verse 13: The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. That was like general fund money. It was paid to the workmen who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. So, what a testimony there. Hired skilled worship, uh, hiring skilled workers was the first big step. Because now you have guys that really know what they're doing, and the work is proceeding. And you have the integrity of those Levites who were now distributing this money and paying the workers. uh, A great testimony of their their integrity. And uh, even the detail now in verse 16 that the project did not keep the priests from getting paid for their regular work of sacrifice and uh, leading worship, verse 16. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So things were clicking. Things were back to where they should be because Joash was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Second uh, Kings reports, as we've just read, of how the, the, the project was successful. Second Chronicles details that not only was the project successful physically to get the job done, but the project was successful spiritually. And the way we can see that it was successful is because we see the joy of giving uh, in that project. All the officials and all the people brought their contributions, gladly dropping them into the chest until it was full. The word is gladly or or rejoiced. And so you have this unity. The leaders or officials are giving, and the people are giving, and there's there's this joy in giving. My observation through the decades has been that when there's a project that people give to with joy, it tells you God's at work and it's going to get done. And uh, uh, the joy of of giving, this is not just an emotion, this is a, a spiritual reality that when we give out of a sense of stewardship to God, a sense of worship of God, he gives us joy as the Reward. And it doesn't matter whether we are someone wealthy or poor. There's an interesting parallel passage in the New Testament, going from Chronicles, that's Old Testament, Corinthians, New Testament, where we find this description of those in Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich Generosity. Something I'd encourage you to ask yourself as you think about the concept of giving financially to the ministry of the church, ministry of missionaries, other uh, spiritual uh, Christian uh, efforts, maybe even the, the compassion uh, child uh, promotion that we have uh, in, in the foyer yet today. To ask yourself, is there, is there joy in your heart as you give, or is it like... Painful to give. Uh, You need to understand the stewardship principle for there to be joy. And here's the basic nature of stewardship. I'm sure that uh, for many of you that uh, we've been a part of the ministry here, we've talked about this a lot, but for some this might be new. Stewardship simply means God owns everything. I don't own anything I simply manage or steward what God gives me. On one hand, it almost makes us go, oh, I don't have anything. And then there's that relief or release where you say, I don't own anything. It's God's. And there becomes a special sense of responsibility and privilege. And in fact, this is where the joy comes from. We get to manage something that God's given to us. And it goes beyond money, but obviously it's a, it's a key uh, factor. Or, uh, everything we have belongs to God. He gave us our life. He gives us our, our health, our jobs, our skills, our abilities, and then money and wealth we need to function. But it's all for this Life. That's why we know it's a stewardship. We know we don't own it because we don't keep it. It's like Monopoly. When the game's over, all these things go back in the box. So whatever we have of those, the time, health, money, jobs, skills, it all goes back in the box. The joy comes when we see all those things as ways to please God because we're managing what he gave us financially. There's joy in earning money because we realize that the the mind and the muscles that we use came from God. So he, he equipped me to do what I'm doing. There's 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 joy in the sense when we pay our bills to know that He supplied. There's 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 joy when we experience a special blessing of some gift that we're able to afford, and we can sense that it's it's God's will and, and blessing to us. And so we become stewards and we become free of the burden that so many people carry about finances but the foundational issue of stewardship in of money starts with giving because giving is how we express to god that you gave it all to me and so i'm giving this regular sacrificial portion to you to say i'm a steward not an owner and and so the percentage that is left is going to be adequate because I trust you, and this is my worship to you, my acknowledgement, it's all yours. It's not just that that certain 5, 10, 15, 20% is yours, whatever the Israelites gave, whatever you decide before God to give, but it's not just that it's, it's that little bit that's God's, it's that that percentage tells God that we understand he owns it all. So God used plan B to help the people visualize that their, their gift of, that went to restoring the temple was worship. I wish this was the end of the story. I just kind of wish that at this point, you know, it would, it would wrap up the life of Joash by saying, and he reigned 40 years and uh, died and, uh, and was buried with his father in honor. Something like that not what it says um, something went wrong along the way here's the first indication verse 17 about this time Haziel king of Aram went up and attacked Gath and captured it that was kind of the perennial enemy during this era of the kings then he had turned to attack Jerusalem but Joash king of Judah took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasury of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And he, Joash, he sent them to Haziel, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. So, Something is very amiss in Joash spiritually because he has now just given away the treasures of the temple he has just restored. He bribes his way out of a problem or tries to. Interestingly, it never says he prayed about his fears. I'm sure it was fearful to have The great king Aram started to send troops down there, but he didn't pray. No, he sent the treasures, the objects, the gifts, the gold. Wait a minute. These treasures weren't his to give. If he had understood stewardship, he'd realize, I can't give away things from the temple. They are not mine to give. But he, in fear, tries to buy his way out of trouble. Fear can change you. Fear fear exposes, fear is normal, but fear exposes where our faith is. We'll reach out to God in humility, say, God, I'm in need and nobody can fix this but you. Or will we seize control and say, God, or rather say to ourselves, I need to fix this with my resources. Proud people try to fix everything themselves. Really, Joash did what every pagan king around him would probably do when threatened by a more powerful foe. That is, try to buy them off. And it seems to us that it worked, right? The king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. It seemed to work. My way worked. Or did it? Well, if you look at the next couple of verses, you see that something else went terribly wrong at the end of his life. And for the complete story, we'll need to turn to 2 Chronicles 24. But verses 19 and 20, in brief, tell us that two of Joash's officials assassinate him. But to understand that, we do need to go to 2 Chronicles 24. So I invite you to turn along with me. 2 Chronicles 24. Uh, it'd be here in our Bibles. It would be page 361. 2 Chronicles 24 uh, tells the same story in much the same way. Back in verse 2, 24-2, it says that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. And so we're kind of prepared for what's coming. Go to verse, uh, end of verse 14. As long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. In verse 15, now Jehoiada was old and full of years, and he died at the age of 130. Wow. He was buried with the kings in the city of David because of the good he had done in Israel for God and for his temple. So this is pretty significant. Jehoiada is such a godly man. They honored him by burying him where? They buried him with the kings. He wasn't a king. He was a priest. But they buried him with the kings. God graciously kept Jehoiada alive unusually long. If he died at 130 and and Joash reigned for 40 years, that means, wow, that means he was 90 when he first presented young Joash as the seven-year-old king and would even explain why probably uh, he said, I need to make sure I get to do this in my lifetime then God even gave him all those years to 130. Um, Verse 17, though, tells us the sad tale of what, not tale, but the sad record of what happened after Jehoiada died. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage or bowed before the king, that's Joash, And he listened to them. Who had he been listening to before? Jehoiada, the godly priest. Now he listened to the officials. Verse 18, And they abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. And although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. That is, they would not listen to the prophet. Joash and the officials turned against the Lord. Listening to to Jehoiada, listening to... Now to his peers, the other officials. Why? What triggered the change? I wonder if the key is in the end of verse 17 where it says, They came, after Jehoiada died, they came and paid homage, or they bowed before him literally. They worshiped him, they honored him as king. What's our inclination? When people praise us. What's our inclination when people swoon over how great we are? We'd like to keep it coming, right? Praise is very addicting. It's so delicious to be praised that we will do just about anything to keep the feelings of pride and significance. That's why we clap for two-year-olds. Yay! because we can get them to keep doing the same thing that we're trying to get them to do. Joash loved his praise, it seems. But then, these officials reveal their real agenda. They abandon the temple, they abandon the worship of God, they bring in the Asherah poles and the idols. They, I take the they to mean Joash and his friends, the officials, and he listened to them. We often are concerned for young people who get in trouble in groups. Because we know that if, if they're finding their approval and their praise from the group, they will listen to the group and it can put them in a bad situation. Well, it's true of us as adults too, isn't it? Who do you listen to? Does, does, does who you listen to dull the voice of God? In your life. Because when God's voice is dulled, we become victims of the culture around us which tells us to do what pleases you, not what pleases God. Joash's life has taken a sad direction. God confronts him, verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada is gone. This term son, by the way, could be son or grandson. Age-wise, it might fit better, based on another passage, that to be a grandson. But regardless, the descendant of the very man who has, who's rescued his life, who established him as king, who instructed him into adulthood. That... Zechariah, that relative of Jehoiada, came and stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, so Joash personally, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but killed his son who said, as he lay dying, May the Lord see this and call you to account. If you go back to verse 20, maybe the saddest statement is when the prophet says, Because you've forsaken the Lord, he's forsaken you. As believers, if, if we take a turn in later life to say, you know, I don't know if it's worth it following. Whatever it is that drives us to some of our, our, our world-focused decisions, we forfeit God's care, God's help. God hearing our prayers because it says if you have forsaken the Lord and he has forsaken you. You. Very sobering. Joash got to the point that we can hardly imagine that he would put to death the son or grandson of the man who had spiritually and physically rescued and preserved and taught him. Spiritual failure, the spiral of spiritual failure seems to know no limit. I was on a phone call earlier this week with someone from out of state, and I heard the sad story of a believer that I've known for uh, 30-some years who has spiraled into some senseless, bad choices and seemingly bitterness towards every godly person in their life. It's like, how, how can that be? But there is no limit to the spiral of sin when we begin to listen to the wrong voices. Zechariah, as he died, says, may God call you into account. May the Lord see this and call you to account. The Lord sees. Did, did Joash lose the sense that God always sees us? Because when we lose our focus on God, we don't even sense that he sees. We don't feel accountable, but but we are, and, and that's when it got so ugly. And, and so Joash, in fact, we see then does pay the price, verse 23. At the turn of the year, the army of Aram, same, same enemy, marched against Joash. It invaded Judah and Jerusalem and killed all the leaders of the people. They sent all the plunder to their king in Damascus. Although the Aramean army had come with only a few men, the Lord delivered them The Lord delivered into their hands a much larger army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Judgment was executed on Joash. So much for buying them off. It was a very short lived, I don't know how many years it was from when Joash had sent all the temple treasures, and then, okay, I'll leave you alone, but they're back. And now they defeat him, and not only defeat him, verse 25. When the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. So he's personally wounded. And his officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest. And they killed him in his bed. So he died and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. This, this is sadness upon Sadness. Not only does he lose to the Arameans, he's wounded. Not only is he wounded and suffering and pain, but then two of his officials are fed up with him and assassinate him. Their names are given. And then his legacy is so tarnished that the nation is embarrassed of him. And so instead of burying him in the tomb of the kings... They bury him outside the tomb of the kings. Remember who was in the tomb of the kings? Go back to verse 16. Godly Jehoiada was honored like a king, though he was not a king. And the king was dishonored after his death and was not even buried with the kings. I can't help but do the math. Godly Jehoiada lived to be 130 years old, honored like a king. Joash turned from the Lord and dies at 47, age seven, he became king, forty years, dies at 47 in disgrace. Because it matters who you listen to. This is sobering, but it is presenting us with an option that that we need to decide what voices are influencing us. I I was looking this week at first. John and I'd like to just read some passages from First John and, and kind of uh, use them make make a diagram for you of how God influences us. Who are you listening to? First John, you have to understand, is written to believers to urge us to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Walk in fellowship with the Lord. We have a choice. And so it presents us, I'm going to start at the end of the book with a couple of key passages. We are God's child, but we are going to be influenced ultimately by Satan or by God. I mean, when you think of worldviews or ideas, they come from one place or another. And as we read in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are children of God... And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we are children. We got that. We're children of God. We're we're in a unique place. But the world is the world of unbelievers. Is under the influence of Satan. It's kind of like that's that's the ideas they're hearing. If they're not hearing them from God, they're that's where they're coming from. But we're children of God. Verse 20, we also know that the Son of God has come, that's Jesus, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So we have a true option. We are in him who is true, even in Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So, okay, we're supposed to think about our position in Christ, but here's the very next verse that seems odd on one hand, to be the last verse of 1 John. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Dear children means, he's talking to us as believers. Dear children, believers, stop the idolatry. How could we, as believers, be worshiping idols? Chapter 2. Here's the idols. Do not love the world or anything in the world If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And now we know the real source of that is, just like the unbeliever, it all is coming from the evil one. That's where the idols of the world come from. Is there an option for us? Yes, because we are God's children. And so the verse just before that, 1 John 2.14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. So we have the world attracting us. Or we have the word of abiding in us. Do you feel the tension? We all do. We all feel it every Day. We are either going to listen to false teaching or we're going to listen to godly people. 1 John 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And when you, when you hear that term false prophets, don't think of some you know, crazy guy leading a cult out on a mountaintop. The false prophets of our day is just simply the worldly ideas of the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, this boasting of what we have and what we do. That's the message that is attracting us. Are we listening to that? Or, verse 4, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them, that is the false teachers, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The Holy Spirit we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. They are from the world and they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We, and John is referring to the apostles, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. We're either listening to false teaching or we're listening to godly people. So it just seems that, that John, as he had, was writing this amazing letter urging us to walk in fellowship with God. He knew his Old Testament. He knew the story of Joash. He knew the temptations were real, that every idea is either coming from the evil one or coming from God. And so the question before us is whether God's word's abiding in us and are we listening to godly people? The ideas that are in our minds as we, as we calibrate Our plans and our goals have a source. And it's messier than we'd want it to be. But we need to be able to learn to identify the voice of the Spirit leading us to a a stewardship principle that my life, everything about my life comes from God, and it's to honor Him. Or I'm going to live in selfishness, pleasing myself. That's the world's ideas. And, And John is the one saying, It's not innocent. It's a satanic temptation. Who are we listening to? It's why we're a Bible church. It's why we open the scriptures week by week. It's it's why we, we urge you to be in the word at home. That's why we have Bible studies or try to teach our kids here the word of God. Because only if God's word is abiding in us. Will we be able to withstand our entire life of walking with Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, prone to wonder, we know. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have the examples of kings like Joash who may feel all too familiar to us when we think of our own heart and the way we, we uh, are attracted. By those who uh, praise us, we do the things that uh, please us the most. We see our pride, we see our selfishness, we see the temptations, and we, we know that it surrounds us. us. Help us as we have, even think of our use of time, how we, how we can be influenced by the world uh, for hours on end and, and have so little time in the Word and with godly people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand strong, that we can uh, go through our life and hear someday your well-done, good and faithful servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.